Grab a Bible and uh, turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going through our series in the book of Daniel. And uh, the ushers, if they haven't already, have they passed them out? Oh, we, oh, they're coming. Here they come. Passing out the uh, sheet for today. You're going to have to do something. I'm sorry. Uh, I was very late today. You're going to have to fold your own handout. Alright, so I'm going to show you how. You're going to... You did it? You folded it? Let's give these guys a hand. They folded it for us. Alright. I was worried. I was worried about folding these on our own, you know. So, hey, never mind. You don't have to fold it. There you go. You might get an extra one. Okay, that's alright. Because they, they triple folded it. Alright. Dave, Rachel, again, it was wonderful to, uh, to have you uh, give that testimony. We really appreciate it and we're looking forward to getting to know you more after the service. So thank you for being here. It's good to have you. And uh, I see Michael Bacon over there. Michael, how's Princeton going? It's cold. It's cold in New Jersey. Let's give a hand for Michael. He's back home. Just for a few, just for a few days. All right. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day. I thank you, Lord, for a new day. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. And today, uh, we caught a glimpse of something new. Something that many of us hadn't seen before, Lord, is to watch worship through dance and through art, through, through pottery. Uh, Father, it's a beautiful thing to see. And we know, Lord, that in eternity we're going to be worshiping You forever. Through our voices, through physical expression, Lord. In many different ways, we are going to lift up the name of Jesus above all names. And I thank You today, Lord, that we learned a new way to do that. Now I pray, Father, for our time in Your Word. Father, You've given us Your Word as a tool to live by to learn by. I pray that today, Lord, as we learn really a a history lesson, but yet prophecy, that we would be molded and shaped by it. That You would use something as obscure as the history that we're going to see today, but to use it in a way that would help guide our lives and show us what is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on your outline, you're going to see some, some uh, unique uh, uh, elements in it today. First, I want to start off with a timeline. I want to remind us, where have we been in the, in the book of Daniel? We've been going through the book of Daniel verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And here we are in chapter 8. And I want to take us through a little bit of a timeline in case you've forgotten where we are. Daniel has been speaking about four world empires. Babylon... Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. And I've bolded those for you on your outline there. In 605 B.C., we had the Babylonian Empire. In 539, the Medo-Persian Empire. In 330, the Greek Empire. And by about 27 B.C., the Roman Empire had come in full force. But between the Babylonian and Medo-Persian Empire, there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of activity in the Scriptures, quite frankly. A lot of your Old Testament books were written between the time of the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, a good, a good majority of the prophetic books were written at that time. And here we are in the book of Daniel, uh, 
seeing this history unfold. In 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Jerusalem, but Daniel, who was a Jew at the time and was sent off to Babylon, he actually rose up in prominence in the land of Babylon because of his prophetic ability. He was able to understand dreams and visions. And the king noticed Daniel's ability and that God was with him. And so he lifted him up in high positions of leadership. By 553 B.C., there was a new king. His name was Nabonidus who appointed his son Belshazzar, a man you find in chapter 5 of Daniel, to be co-regent of Babylon. And it was at that time, in 553 B.C., that Daniel had a couple visions. In 553, he had the vision of four beasts that we learned about in Daniel chapter 7. The four world empires. In Daniel 8, just three years after that, Daniel had another vision, this time of a ram, of a goat, and of a little horn. And that is the subject of our study here today. The title of my message is, The Ram, the Goat, and the Little Horn. We're in part two of this message. It's entitled, uh, Antiochus, a Prelude of Antichrist. Antiochus, a Prelude of Antichrist, or Antiochus, rather. So turn to Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to take this step by step. I provided an outline for you, but we're going to walk through it step by step here. So starting in verse 1, let me read it. Daniel writes this. He's recounting the vision. He says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. He's going talking about the one in Daniel 7. And he said in verse 2, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, or Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. And then I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram. Standing beside the river was a ram with two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Here we have Daniel experiencing a vision from God. He's not sleeping. Uh, he's experiencing, while very much awake, a revelation, a prophetic revelation from God. And he's all of a sudden transported to another place. It's not likely that he was in the city of Shushan at the time. That was some 200 miles away from Babylon. And it was not even really a Babylonian territory at the time. It was what would soon become a Persian territory. And Daniel was transplanted from where he was and put in the city of Susa or Shushan by a river the river Ulai, which was a man-made canal near the, near the city. Daniel's location, though, is significant. Where he was transplanted, if you will, is significant. For what he is about to see pertains to the empire that is coming in. Susa, or Shushan, was a city of Persia. And Daniel was about to see a vision of a ram that would be known as Persia. You see, in the previous vision of chapter 7, 
Animals were used to represent kings and kingdoms. And so it is here in chapter 8. The identity of the two-horned ram on your outline there. Get my my, uh, double folded here. The identity of the ram in chapter 8 on your outline in in the middle of the page there is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire. As it was in chapter 7, where animals and beasts represented kingdoms, so it is in chapter 8, where the ram and the goat are going to indicate kings and kingdoms. The identity of the ram, the two-horned ram, is none other than Medo-Persia. Two horns, because it was composed of two people groups, the Medes and the Persians. One horn was higher than the other and came up later. You see, the Medes were a people group earlier than the Persians, but when the Persians came and incorporated into the Medo-Persian Empire, it was the Persian side that dominated the empire. One horn larger than the other, the Persian side. Persia, of course, was located in the east. And true to Daniel's prophetic vision in verse 4, when Persia came to power, she pushed westward and northward and southward. So here we have Daniel seeing a vision of what is to come just really ten years after this vision. It would come to pass. But it doesn't stop here. The vision moves on. And now Daniel has moved some 200 years into the future where another king and kingdom come into play. Look at verse 5. Daniel 8, verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river. And he ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. And he was moved with rage against him. And he broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was none that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. We'll stop there. No king and no kingdom better fits the description of the male goat in Daniel 8 better than Alexander the Great in the kingdom of Greece. Once again, on your outline, the goat equals Greece. And the large horn of the goat equals Alexander the Great. As verse 5 indicates, Alexander and Greece came from the west. He came with such speed that it was said his armies never touched the ground. Verses 6 and 7 says, the goat came at the ram, the ram of Persia, with furious power and broke it. Broke the horns of Persia. So also, Greece conquered Persia in less than three years. The Persian Empire was totally destroyed. And Greece became great, spreading her culture, her language, her customs across the ancient world. The Greek language became the lingua franca of the day. But in time, the large horn was broken. In time, Alexander the Great died. In fact, he died prematurely, not even ten years after his conquests. And many of his generals, after his death, they vied for power. There were four of them in particular that vied for power. Antigonus, later Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysicomus, and Cassander. These generals, they, they, after Alexander's death, they came upon the scene 
and grabbed certain territories of Greece. And it was split. The kingdom was split into four distinct territories. History will attest to that. Any historian will attest to that. Verse 8, Therefore the male goat became great, but when he became strong, the large horn Alexander was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up, just like the four divisions of the Grecian Empire. They came up to the four winds of heaven. In, in time, two of these four lesser kingdoms would rise in prominence. The Ptolemies to the south and the Seleucid Empire to the north. And it was from the house of Seleucus to the north that another king came. Take a look at verse 9. And out of one of them, that is to say, out of one of those four lesser kingdoms of Greece, out of one of them, the, the, the kingdom of Seleucid, Seleucus, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted Himself as high as the prince of the host. And by Him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of His sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and He prospered. Well now, this isn't the first time we've seen a little horn, is it? This isn't the first time we've seen a little horn. We saw a little horn earlier in the book of Daniel. Turn back to Daniel chapter 8 in your Bible. I believe it's also listed on your outline there. There's another little horn in Daniel 8, or Daniel chapter 7, just a chapter earlier. Look at verse 7. Daniel writes this. He says, And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. And it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Okay, easy enough, right? Little horn, verse seven, uh, chapter seven. Little horn, chapter eight. Must be the same horn, right? Right? Maybe. Good answer, Jack. <laughs> Maybe. There are some similarities for sure. I mean, the question is, 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 are the horns the same? Is the little horn of chapter 7 the same as the little horn of chapter 8? And if so, you know, why does that even matter? Uh, we'll get to that. What are the differences? What are the similarities? In fact, there are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities between the two horns. Now, I, I should backtrack just a little bit and say, first of all, who is the little horn of chapter 7? We've already learned it. So who is the little horn of chapter 7? Anyone? Say it loud. The Antichrist. That's right. The little horn of chapter 7 is undoubtedly 
the final man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. We know him popularly as the Antichrist. That much is very, very clear from chapter 7 and from the reading of the exploits of that little horn. But when we come to chapter 8, we see another little horn. And this one has characteristics that are reminiscent of the little horn in chapter 7. There are certainly some similarities. The similarities are, well, for, for starters, on your outline, number one, they both rise to power from within a smaller kingdom. Right in the word smaller. They both rise to power from within a smaller kingdom. The, the Antichrist, it is said, rises up from among a ten king you know, group of men. Right? And he rises up from within that, that ten king coalition. Likewise, the little horn of chapter 8 says he rises up from within a four king coalition. Out of one of them comes up a little horn. Well, that, the ten and the four indicate that these kingdoms are, are less of lesser significance than the empires we've been looking at thus far throughout ancient history. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Secondly, they experience rapid growth in power. The Antichrist, the little horn in chapter 7, it is said that he rapidly rises to power. And so also in chapter 8, if you look at chapter 8, verse 9, what does it say? In chapter 8, verse 9, it says, And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. There's, this, there's a quickness about His power. There's a quickness about its rise. Thirdly, they exhibit tremendous pride. The Antichrist of chapter 7, the little, the little horn, it is said that he speaks pompous words. And so also, you come to chapter 8 and you read verse 11 and it says that he exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. That's pretty high. Given the fact that the prince of the host is none other than the Lord Himself. That's a significant statement. That the little horn of chapter 8 magnified himself. He, he touted himself as high as the Lord God of Israel. Fourth, they both persecuted the Jews. In chapter 7, it is said that he's, the, the saints are given over to his hand for a time and time and half a time, indicating the Jews. And in chapter 8, this little horn is also said to persecute the Jews. Notice verse 10 of chapter 8. It says, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Well, how does God describe the children of Israel back in Genesis when He takes Abraham up on, up on a mountain and says, hey, look, look at the stars of the sky. So will your descendants be. Throughout Scripture, the Jews are referred to as the stars or the host of heaven. As are angels, no doubt. But in particular here, it's undoubted, undoubtedly the case that the little horn of chapter 8 is persecuting the Jews. Five, they both change laws and times, particularly religious laws. It is said in 725 of Daniel that the, that the little horn will change times and law. And it is said later on in chapter 8 of, of Daniel, the other little horn, what will he do? It says, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary cast down. Changing. Times 
religious law and customs. Finally, they both blaspheme the Lord God. The little horn of chapter 7 speaks pompous words against the Most High. The little horn of chapter 8 exalts himself as high as the Lord God. It seems then that these are the same two kings, right? The Antichrist of chapter 7, the little horn. Well, then isn't it also the Antichrist of chapter 8, the little horn? Not quite. Because you see, there are some differences too. And we continue on in our outline. What are some of the differences? Well, there's a huge difference right off the bat. In chapter 7, where, from where, from which empire does the little horn come from? Say it loud. Rome. Write that down. In chapter 7, you have the little horn coming from the empire of Rome. It is clear as crystal. Whereas in chapter 8, we have a little horn coming from another empire. What empire is that? Greece. Right in Greece. There's a difference. A big one. In chapter 8, you have, or excuse me, in chapter 7, you have the little horn, the Antichrist, coming out of a coalition of kings. But how many kings are there? Ten. Ten kings. Go ahead and write that down. Flip over to chapter 8. We have a little horn rising up out of, into power, but he comes out of a coalition of four kings, right? Four kings. I gave away the answer. Right in four. Ten verses four. Another difference. In chapter 7, we have the little horn, and who confronts the little horn and ultimately destroys him? The Lord does. The Lord God does. He is destroyed by the Lord God of Israel. Whereas in chapter 8, we're going to learn that the manner of death of the little horn in chapter 8 is very unclear. Right in the word unclear. Finally, in chapter 7, the kingdom of God begins when the little horn is destroyed. But fast forward to chapter 8, and it's un it's not quite clear again what transpires next after the exploits of this little horn. From this it is clear that Daniel was not seeing one and the same little horn in the visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8. To be sure, he was seeing a vision of two men that bore great similarity to one another. Great similarity. But similarity does not mean same. And the differences between the two little horns are very, very noticeable. The little horn of chapter 7 is clearly the Antichrist, the final man of sin. Who then is the little horn of chapter 8? Let's read it through one more time just to become familiar with him. Look at verse 9. And out of one of them, out of one of the Greek kingdoms, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. And he did all this and prospered. Friends, history is very clear. And thankfully, 
scholars are very much agreed that the little horn of chapter 8 is none other than a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. On the back of your sheet, you'll see his name. Antiochus Epiphanes. The little horns are not the same. They're similar, but they are not the same. The little horn of chapter 7 is the Antichrist. And the little horn of chapter 8, who bears great similarity to the little horn of chapter 7, is none other than a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Who was Antiochus Epiphanes? Why should we care about him? And keep in mind, by the way, as we are going through this, let's not lose sight of one amazing fact. And it is that Daniel is receiving a vision of this some 200, no, excuse me, some 400 years before it happened. Antiochus Epiphanes became the king of the Seleucid Empire in 175 B.C. And Daniel is experiencing this vision in about 550 B.C. Don't lose sight of the fact that this is prophecy being fulfilled. And you and I look at it now as history. Amazing. God's control over human events is bar none. Who was Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, he came to power. He's an interesting guy because he's a, he's a nice guy. Because he came to power by killing his brother's son. Real nice guy. In fact, his brother's son was an infant at the time when he killed him. He slaughtered his nephew to become the king of the Seleucid Empire. And he came to power in 175 B.C. He nicknamed himself Theos Epiphanes, meaning God Manifest. He claimed to be divine. <coughs> Antiochus Epiphanes claimed to be God Himself. And interestingly enough, his critics, and there were many, his critics, as a, as a play off of the word Epiphanes, often chided uh, that he was not Epiphanes, but rather uh, Epiphanes, meaning madman. He's a madman. So crazy was Antiochus Epiphanes uh, that, that, that his exploits are almost unlike any ancient king in, uh, of all the enemies of Israel. But most important for our discussion here is, is really the question of how did he treat Israel? How did he treat the Jews? Because Daniel is a Jew, writing from a Jewish context. He's an Israelite. And he is the one who's writing and seeing this vision about this king. God wouldn't have given him this vision had it had no impact upon the Jewish people. The question is, how did this man treat the Jews? Well, within years of his rise to power, within four years of his rise to power, Antiochus Epiphanes killed Onias. Who was Onias? He was a faithful Jewish high priest at the time in Jerusalem. And Antiochus came into Jerusalem and wanting to utilize his power and authority and wanting to persuade the Jews to follow the Greek ways and cultures, he killed Onias, a very beloved high priest. And instead of Onias, he installed some quasi-priests, men by the name of Jason and Menaeus, I believe. I may have gotten that name wrong. Um, but Jason and, and these quasi-priests uh, were really puppets in the hand of Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Uh, they They were loyal to Him. They were sympathetic toward Greek religion and culture. They were Jews, but they were Hellenized Jews. They were Jews who took a little bit from the Jewish culture and embraced a whole lot from the Greek culture and said, can't we have both? Well, this caused a major riff among the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And there were some Jews that were none too happy to embrace the syncretistic nature of bringing in both the Greek and also the Jewish cultures together and the religions together. There were many Jews that said, no, we are not going to bring these two cultures together. We are not going to obey the customs of the Greeks. We are not going to worship the gods of the Greeks. Then there were other Jews that were more open to the idea. And there was a riff in Palestine. As it turned out, that riff was only the beginning of what was to come. Antiochus in time passed harsh regulations in the land of Palestine. He started, get this, he started changing laws and customs. It started with the prohibition of the Sabbath. He refused the opportunity for the Jews to practice keeping the Sabbath. Secondly, he later put a ban on temple sacrifice. No longer could someone bring their sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem as a Jew. And finally, it culminated in him making it illegal to practice Judaism, to practice the Jewish religion in Jerusalem, in all of the land of Palestine. He, in its place, in place of worshiping the Lord God of Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes admonished the people to worship the gods of the Greeks. On your outline, I've, I've listed a passage on the back. It's from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of books um, which has value, historical value, and uh, to some extent, it exhibits a lot of truth and is found uh, in, many, in most of your uh, most Catholic Bibles. But the Apocrypha is not recognized as Holy Scripture according to uh, us as evangelical Christians. But nevertheless, it gives us a take and a good take on history at times. In the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verse 44, it speaks of this time period when Antiochus Epiphanes was attacking the Jews. Notice what it says. And the king, Antiochus, he directed them to follow customs that were strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbath and the feasts, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. And the Jews were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they should forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whoever does not obey the king, the command of the king shall die. That was the sentiment in second century Palestine with respect to Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews were scared of this man. He was an awful king. And he persecuted them relentlessly. How does this align with uh, the book of Daniel? Oh, I don't know. Take a look. Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. What does it say? It says that out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great to the south, to the east, and toward the glorious land. Sure enough, if you were to look over Antiochus Epiphanes' military exploits, those were the exact patterns of his efforts. Look at verse 10. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the stars and some of the uh, some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Sure enough, Antiochus Epiphanes was relentlessly 
persecuting the Jewish people. Look at verse 11. He even exalted Himself as high as the Prince of the Hosts. Sure enough, He nicknamed Himself Theos, Epiphanes. God manifests. The end of verse 11. And by Him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of God's sanctuary was cast down. As we've learned, Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed Jewish worship on so many levels. The parallels are clear. The the parallels between what Daniel saw and the the life of Antiochus Epiphanes are clear. That this is one and the same man that we're speaking of. Now such provocation culminated in the year 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes he entered the temple at Jerusalem and he erected a, a statue of the Greek god Zeus and slaughtered a pig upon the temple altar in mock sacrifice of the Jewish faith. That, as they say, was the, the straw that broke the camel's back for the Jews. Antiochus's grotesque action in the temple came to be known in Jewish circles as the Hasychus Mesomem, the abomination of desolation. And it sparked a revolt among the pious Jews. Within days, a small band of Jewish patriots began to form. And it started with a family, a faithful Jewish a priestly family, from a man named Matthias Maccabees and his sons. And one son in particular, Judas Maccabees, he became the face and the namesake of the revolt. And within three short years, a lowly group of Jewish farmers and peasants had defeated every armed force that Antiochus could muster. Now think about that. The Greek Seleucid Empire and all of its might, having conquered much of Egypt for that matter, could not handle a small group of Jewish rebels that rose up to defend their national honor and the worship of the Lord their God. And in the year 165 B.C., on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev, Judas Maccabees and the victorious Jews, they re-entered the temple in Jerusalem, they removed the statue of Zeus, and they began a process of rededicating and cleansing the temple for worship again. And in the process, in the process of that rededication, the Jewish priests, the legitimate Jewish priests, they walked into the temple and they came to the menorah, one of the, the, the candle, the candle uh, uh, elements in the temple. And they came to the menorah and they lit the candles. And they noticed as they lit the candles that there was only going to be enough oil for one day. And they left the temple that day. And when they came back the next day, having, having rid themselves of the Greeks, having rid themselves of Antiochus Epiphanes, having rededicated the temple and, cleansed, and began the process of cleansing it, when they came back into the temple, they noticed that that menorah was still lit the second day. And they left. And they came back a third day and it was still lit, though it only had oil for one night. And they came back a fourth day, and a fifth day, and a sixth day, all the way to the eighth day. And they walked in the temple, and sure enough, that menorah, that temple element, that item in the temple, was still lit, though it only had oil for one night. Today, in commemoration of the Maccabean Revolt and the dedication of the temple, Jews worldwide, on the 25th day of Kislev, They light a candle in their home. 
And for the next seven days, they light seven more candles in honor of the miracle of the menorah in the temple. You and I know it today as the holiday or the feast of Hanukkah. Isn't that remarkable? The feast of Hanukkah. What Jews celebrate today is right here in the Scriptures. In fact, in, in one of the Gospels, when Jesus indicates that He's the light of the world, John Nemo uh, points out that it's very likely that Jesus was there in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Hanukkah. It was a national holiday. And even Jesus Himself celebrated it. Judas Maccabees was a hero in the line of Daniel and Joshua. A, a, a mighty, valiant hero of Israel. And the menorah and the lighting of those eight, uh, those eight candles spanning eight days uh, suggested that God's hand was upon this. That it was a miracle for the people of Israel to rid themselves of Antiochus Epiphanes and to cleanse and dedicate their temple once again. Daniel's vision continues in verse 13. He says, "...then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Remember, from Daniel's viewpoint, this was all future. From our viewpoint, it's all past. But from Daniel's viewpoint, he was asking and he said, how how much longer? I want to know how much longer. The angel himself is the one who expressed the question and said to another angel, would you tell him? Would you explain to Daniel how long this time of persecution will last? And the response is, for 2,300 days. Or 2,300 evenings, or mornings and evenings, literally in the Hebrew. We can't be sure exactly of this reference of 2,300 days because it's quite vague. But it appears to be that from the time Antiochus Epiphanes murdered Onias, notice your outline, 171 B.C., from the time Antiochus Epiphanes murdered Onias to the time that Judas Maccabees rededicated the temple, that was approximately six and one-third years. Exactly the span of time of 2,300 days. Time won't permit us this morning to finish the vision of chapter 8. But we'll conclude with it next week in our our third and final part in Daniel 8. But first I want to ask the question, why this history lesson? What's the value of this? Why is this in our Bible? Uh, Isn't there something more palatable? Something easier? Something more relevant for today? My response to that is there, there are few things more relevant than this. You see, first of all, this isn't just a history lesson. It's prophecy. And it's fulfilled. Just as God intended. Remember that Daniel saw this vision 400 years before it happened. God knows everything. And He's in control of everything. Nothing happens outside of His purview. The other things that we've learned today is is that history is unfolding just as the Bible said it would. The story of Antiochus Epiphanes the, the how it lays out is exactly as Daniel saw it. 
But it also is a window on your outline there. Antiochus' character and actions serve as a window into the future of the final world kingdom and ruler. Antiochus is a type. Is he the little horn of chapter 7? No. The two horns are separate. The little horn of chapter 7 is not the little horn of chapter 8. But the little horn of chapter 8 prefigures. He's a prelude of the Antichrist who is to come. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes was nearly 2,200 years ago, so there is coming a time where kings and kingdoms will be upended. You seen any of that today? <laughs> Libya, Egypt. Pretty soon, uh, Italy and Greece, right? They're, they're unfolding economically. How many more kingdoms in Europe and the Middle East are going to fold and fail? How many more? How many more new kings are going to rise up? How many different coalitions of powers? How many different delineations of powers? Kings and kingdoms will be appended, the Bible says, but world power will one day be consolidated. Under whom? One king. One king who will rise up in pride and prominence. And what will that king do? He will target the Jews. Just as the Bible said he would. Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes of chapter 8 sure did. And many, many kings after him did. And surely, the Antichrist, the one who is to come, is going to target the Jews for persecution. And there will come a time of trouble that is unlike any the world has ever seen. Antiochus is a prefigure. He's a prelude of what is to come. And as we learn about him, as we study him, and what happened in the time of the Maccabees, and the Maccabean Revolt, and why, we, why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah today, as we understand that history and get a grasp on it, you are also understanding the future and understanding what that will look like. And it is equipping you and me to warn others of what is to come. Because history, my friends, it repeats itself. First John, uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll close with this. 1 John. Chapter 2. Off the notes here for just a minute. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Little children, John writes at the very end here. 2.18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come by which we, now, by which we know that it is the last hour. John was saying it to us, friends, as, as clear as crystal. He says, hey, we're near the time of the end. And Antichrist is coming. And many Antichrists are coming in, 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 his, in, 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 uh, in readiness for this world. In anticipation of what is to come. There will be many Antichrists who come in the line of that final world ruler. Antiochus was one of them. You might look at what Hitler did as another type of Antichrist. And surely there's going to be another one. That final man of sin. And what he does will be unlike anything you've seen yet. Greater than Antiochus Epiphanes. Greater than Mao. Greater than Hitler. What he will do on this earth is beyond human calculation. And it is our duty as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, as we study God's Word, to ready ourselves with the knowledge of what is to come.
These types, these lesser antichrists, they are a window into the future. And we do well to understand and study them. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time in Your Word. It's a, a difficult passage, Lord, that we've come to today. And surely there's, there's more yet to come in Daniel that is exceedingly difficult to interpret and to understand. But God, thank You for Your Spirit who makes clear Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that, that we are able to see here today just the way in which Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled in the man of Antiochus Epiphanes. And thank You, God, that You are on the throne and that men like this are not on the throne. That, Lord, You are in control and that on the last day, You will come and utterly destroy that final man of sin. The one who will wreak havoc on this world like none before Him. We thank You, Lord, that You are in control of all world events and that we can put our hope and our trust in Jesus the King. We look forward to His soon return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.